as always, we want to encourage you that if, uh, if you didn't, if you weren't present for our time of announcements or if we set them too quick and there's something going on in the church that you need information on, a great resource, a great place to go for that is www.firstfamily.us. Uh, where you can find all the information you need about what's going on in the church. Or you could also look in your bulletin, which also gives you great record of what's going on in First Family. We'd love for you to stay connected and to be involved. Uh, we have Bibles and, and note sheets for you for today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand, and our ushers will bring those forward so that you can uh, have the Scripture open in front of you, and you can be studying along as we look at God's incredible Word. As I shared a little bit last week at the beginning of the time of of worshiping God through paying attention to His Scripture, I want to encourage you not to harden yourself to the suffering of Christ. We have come a long way, and we are coming upon some Scripture that are very difficult to read and to think about and to, and to meditate upon. And I, I want to remind you that this is not clinical classroom learning. This is relational. As we come to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we're, we're learning about a dear loved one, and His suffering is real to us. It's okay to let your heart be moved by what you hear in the preaching this morning. Now, we're never going to be as a church the kind of church that tries to pull at people's heartstrings and get people worked up into an emotional frenzy to try to manipulate or make you experience something or think you experienced something that maybe you didn't experience. But at the same time, we don't want to make the opposite error, which is to inoculate ourselves to the emotions that come when somebody you love suffers. This is emotional. This is powerful, and it is okay if your heart is moved by this, if, if you are, are, are brought to a state where you are brought low by the, the truth and the reality of the, the, the suffering of Jesus Christ, then God can use that. He can use it to soften your heart. He can use it to humble you. He can use it to make you appreciate and glorify Him for the salvation that He has won for you. So please, brothers and sisters, don't be afraid to let the gospel make its impact on you today as we study together. At the end of the passage that we were meditating on last week, Luke described Jesus' third and final secular trial. And at the end of that trial, you might have noticed that Pilate never declares Jesus guilty. Jesus is not guilty of any of the things that the chief priests and the scribes have blamed him for. We know that Pilate has not found him worthy of execution but instead he has simply turned him over to the frenzied desires of the masses who want to put him to death. And with that last injustice, as Pilate decides not to give Jesus freedom that he deserves, but instead gives him execution, which he does not deserve, we have come to the cross. Jesus has clearly pointed us to this moment for months now as we've studied through the Gospel of Luke. We have made continual, incremental progress towards this very critical moment. And Jesus' earthly mission is near to completion. Finally, the Chosen One of Israel will fulfill the, will fulfill the ultimate purpose for which He took on human flesh. He will come, He will live, He will be perfect and fulfill the law, and then He will, as an innocent man, be put to death in the place of sinners. And with that last injustice, here we are, before his cross. This is where the Gospel of Luke, by the way, is going to earn its R rating. If anybody were to make the Bible into a movie, it would be rated R at the very least. It is an honest picture of the brutal sin of mankind, of the difficult and sometimes ugly things that people do to one another. And here as we think about the cross and the, the mechanics of how it was carried out, we will be offended by its violence. And yet we must remember that this is history and it cannot be amended. We cannot dumb it down for the sake of our modern sensibilities. We must be honest about what occurred there. Luke's account, surprisingly, leaves out a lot of the physical details of the suffering of Jesus. We know that Luke was a physician by trade, and when we began this journey through his gospel, he's writing this as a, a compilation of all that he knows of Christ so that he might bless his friend Theophilus, who desires to grow in his faith and his understanding of Jesus' earthly ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, and also the acts of the early church that were fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so as a physician throughout his gospel, 
Luke has from time to time pointed out little details that perhaps others would not have noticed. We've seen this even in just the last couple of weeks as we've been studying leading up to the cross. We saw it in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was praying and pleading with God to give him resolve, he knows that the cross is going to be a difficult, difficult thing for him. He is experiencing temptation from the enemy, temptation from Satan to remain pure and to guard his holiness by refusing to go to the cross. And in his agony and in his strife, he is so uh, stressful. He's, at, he's got so much duress in his heart that we're told by Luke that his capillaries just under his skin burst and that his sweat is mingled with blood and he's literally bleeding drops of blood from his brow as he prays there in the garden. That's, that's something that the other Gospels don't tell us. We saw after he was apprehended in that garden how Peter took out a sword and tried to, uh, to advance and, and against one of their enemies and, and Jesus stopped him. Uh, all the other Gospels say the same thing, but Luke adds the little detail that Jesus reached down and picked up that man's ear that was cut off by the sword and puts it back on his head and, and heals that man. These little details, Luke the physician has been happy to include for us to flesh out the story of Jesus' life. And so it seems a little curious to me that Luke is so brief when it comes to describing the physical gauntlet that Jesus is going to face in the next few verses. It's possible that perhaps Luke understood and, and wanted his reader to understand that the grief that Jesus experienced at the cross was about so much more than physical agony. To be sure, the greatest hardship that Jesus would face on that hill called Calvary was not the thorns that were pressed down into his brow. By the way, Luke's gospel does not speak of the crown of thorns that were put on his head by the Roman soldiers uh, in mockery of his claim to kingship. The greatest hardship that Jesus experienced was not the nails through his hands and his feet. Neither was it the, the many lashes that he endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers. The most difficult aspect of this whole ordeal for Jesus was not physical, but spiritual. To become our atoning sacrifice. Jesus had to take sin upon his perfect shoulders. He had to become sin for us. Even though he had never committed sin against the Father, he had never offended God himself. And the result of this was that the time he suffered on the cross, he became detestable to himself. And Jesus also became detestable to God the Father, who had to turn his face away from Jesus because of the amount of sin that he took upon himself. And so I want us all to open our scriptures, but not to Luke to begin with. I want you to turn to Matthew briefly. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 27. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here in this, this brief set of scriptures we're going to read. But by way of transition, I want to go over a section that Matthew includes that fills in the gaps in the space between the passage we read last week in Luke and the passage that we're going to study here this morning. And so in Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to read for us verses 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus delivered him to be crucified. Pilate works to convince himself that though he's about to do what is completely unjust and unrighteous, he wants to believe that his hands are clean. So he literally takes a bowl of water and symbolically washes his hands in front of the Jews saying, listen, if you want to crucify him, you go for it, but I'm not going to be responsible for this man's sin. No matter what, water he washes his hands in. He cannot deny the fact, though, that there was man, one man standing between execution and freedom for Jesus, and that was Pilate. The one person who could have freed him chose not to do so. So as much as Pilate would like to think that this is the responsibility of the chief priests, that this is the responsibility of the scribes, truly Jesus' blood is on his own hands to some degree. 
Now the opposite attitude is displayed in the Jewish leaders who were there that day. The chief priests were so intent on seeing Jesus executed that they issue to Pilate a kind of guarantee. They assure him that they don't see him as guilty in this. They insist that the responsibility for Jesus' death, his blood, be on their own hands and on the hands of their children. That's an interesting detail. Remember that for later. They didn't have the authority, by the way, to absolve Pilate of his involvement. Truth is truth. Pilate is guilty, but we also see here a willingness even for these high priests, these chief priests, these scribes, and even the crowds that they had convinced Jesus was guilty to take the blood of Jesus upon themselves. And so, of course, they are culpable in this situation. When we are honest, there is a very real sense in which the blood of Jesus, the responsibility for his unjust trial and execution, is on all of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have been incapable of living holy lives. Had we been able to keep the word of God, had we not rebelled against the Lord God, we'd be experiencing life like Adam and Eve experienced for a brief time in the Garden of Eden. But because of our universal sin, each one of us committing it and being born with this, this tendency to rebel against God, because of this sin in us, Jesus Christ had to go to the cross to redeem us. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which I'm sure many of you have seen, directed by Mel Gibson, the scene in which Jesus' arms are stretched out across the crossbeam of the cross, and the hammer comes down upon the iron stake, and it is driven through his hands. The actual hands of the Roman soldier driving in the nails are Mel Gibson's hands. You do not see his face. He is off screen, but he insisted as a man who confesses faith in Jesus Christ that he play that part because he knows that it is for his own personal sin that Jesus died. And he wanted to show that to himself in making this film and humble himself in that regard. Friends, we are all sinners. And it is for the, the price of, of freedom that Jesus gave his life for sinners like us. We are all in some way, shape, or form guilty uh, when we see the cross and the weight of the sin that Jesus carried there for us. But we must realize, brothers and sisters, that ultimately Jesus is the one who chose to give his life to wash away the guilt of sinners like us. He did not have to die. Jesus did not give his life to become glorious. He has always been glorious. Jesus did not spare us so that he might achieve the title of merciful. God has always been merciful. He has always been good. He has always been loving. And had we sinned against him and God would have stepped back and said, you get what you deserve and allowed us all to go to hell and suffer the eternal punishment that we have earned by our sin, he would still be loving. He would still be perfect and merciful and good. But because he desired to save us, because it was pleasing to God, because it was His will to redeem us from our sin, Jesus gave His own life on the cross for us. It was not taken from Him. He gave it up willingly. So ultimately, Jesus is the one who chooses to offer Himself up for us. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and I know this verse is wrong on the screen. It's supposed to say 2, 22 through 23. Peter's preaching. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see responsibility in this passage. Leave that up for just a second on the screen, if you will. We see that the scribes and the chief priests insisted on the death of Jesus. And so Peter points the finger directly at them and without holding back says, you are responsible. 
He also shows that they did it through the hands of lawless men, pointing towards these Romans who don't care about what is right so much as what is expedient. They are also responsible. But then he also makes it very clear to us in the first half of verse 23 that it was all done, why? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So ultimately, God is the one who chooses to send his son. And Jesus is the one who says, Amen. He goes forward out of love for us. Now after turning over to the people, a true criminal by the name of Barabbas we spoke about last week, Matthew's account indicates that Jesus is forced to endure a Roman scourging. This is one of the most gruesome details regarding Jesus' crucifixion. And Luke, in a sense, glosses over it. He gives it very little time in his gospel. This terrible punishment was done publicly, and it was never done against a Roman citizen. The soldier who administered this punishment would use a weapon called a flagellum, which was a multi-stripped whip, typically about three feet in length. The, The strands of the flagellum were weighted on the end, either with bits of iron or pieces of bone. It was weighted to increase the velocity of the straps of leather as they made their way violently across the backs of the offending criminal. Sometimes even shards of of rock or bone were pressed into the face of the leather so as to facilitate more pain and greater damage to the backside of the person who was whipped in a scourging. While Jewish law limited whippings to 40 lashes, the Romans didn't have such limitations and would often beat a prisoner to within an inch of his life or even further. It was not uncommon for a Roman prisoner condemned to death by crucifixion to die on the post in his lashings before he even made it to the cross. (coughs) Church historian Eusebius of Caesarea recounts with vivid, horrible detail the scene of scourging. He says... For they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them, meaning some criminals that they witnessed being scourged, when he saw them lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. This was no slap on the wrist. And Jesus endured this even before he began to make his way to crucifixion. Also omitted in Luke's account is the crown of thorns which were placed on his head. In fact, they were beaten down with a reed by the soldiers who also draped a purple robe over his shoulders, probably the robe that, uh, that Herod Antipas sent him back in, in mockery to Pilate. They placed that on his shoulders. They put this reed or this uh, thorn crown upon the head of Jesus that was comprised of, of vines with probably two to three inch thorns. And then they beat it down on on his head with the fake scepter that they gave to him. And then they bowed the knee and mocked him as king and gave him fake honor. It was all a a way of making him feel foolish and making him appear like a a sham to the people. They took that purple robe off um, after they had finished mocking him and they sent him to the cross. So there are many details that Luke omits, but but we're going to see a little bit more later on Uh, that it's important for us to understand exactly how this took place. Now, if you turn back to Luke chapter 23, we're going to read the passage that we will study today in Luke's gospel. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 34. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, 
There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So Jesus is led away by the chief priests who have gotten what they wanted from Pilate, by the Roman soldiers who are happy to fulfill their command, by the portion of the crowd that has been convinced by their arguments and their shouting and their insults that Jesus is a threat to Israel. They all lead Jesus away to his final doom. Even though we have come to the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry, even though he's about to give the most excellent gift that will ever be given to men, Luke tells the story from a wide enough angle that he's able to include the subplots of several secondary characters who are witness to this event. Jesus will yield his life on the cross. But meanwhile, Luke will also record the context in which it happens. He will challenge us to consider how this unique sacrifice that Jesus makes impacts the people who are there to observe it. And so the first of, of many people that Luke includes in this telling of, of the Passion is named Simon of Cyrene. According to Roman law, crucified criminals were responsible for carrying the crossbeam. It was also called a patibulum, the large wooden beam that would hang on the central vertical piece of the cross. Those prisoners were liable to carry that themselves up the hill to their crucifixion. Jesus did this, at least to some extent. We see in John 19, 17, that Scripture tells us he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So Jesus did hoist that splintery wooden beam upon his raw shoulders. And though exhausted, though he was suffering from blood loss and the trauma of his beatings, he carried it quite a distance. But the severe beating that Jesus had endured and the scourging compromised his physical strength. Jesus is struggling to make his way up the mountain with this great burden. And so the soldiers who are motivated to get the process moving, they reach out and they grab a random man who is passing by. And they compel him to pick up that crossbeam and to carry it. And this man, though he had nothing to do with the proceedings, now follows Jesus up the hill to Calvary. What do the scriptures tell us about this man. We are told first that his name is Simon. Now, as you know, Simon is one of the most common names that we see in the New Testament Scripture. To differentiate for his readers, Luke includes a little information about where Simon is from so we don't mix him up with Simon uh, the disciple or with Simon who worked at the temple. He has an origin. So not only does he have the name Simon, he has an origin, Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. Uh, it is located in what is modern-day Libya, although Cyrene is no longer a city itself. It's been long since destroyed. It is some 700 miles from Jerusalem. There was a prominent Jewish community there, historically, in Cyrene uh, that was established during the exile period. And so Simon is almost certainly a Jewish man. We know that his name is Simon, that he's from Cyrene. We also know that he has a story. He's on a pilgrimage of sorts. According to verse 26, he's coming in from afar. So this Jewish man from Cyrene, hundreds of miles away, is just now entering the city of David after a very long journey. No doubt he has come to worship and observe the Passover feast with his countrymen. Now, since he's an out-of-towner and he's just now arriving on the scene, we can deduce that Simon has nothing to do with the proceedings that we've just read so much about. It's quite likely that Simon knows nothing about Jesus whatsoever. He's from a very different part of the world. And so he has not been around the preaching and the teaching and the miracle working of Jesus. Jesus worked mostly to the north. He's from the south and to the west. And so this man is not there to stand for Christ. This man is not there to condemn Christ. He's simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm sure you have seen movies before where a police officer is in desperate pursuit of a criminal, and that criminal jumps into a car and drives away, and the man runs out in the street, and the first car that drives by, he puts his hands out and stops that vehicle, flashes a badge, throws the man out of the car, jumps in and chases off after that, that villain. You've probably seen that several times. 
I don't know if they can actually do that in real life, uh, but we all kind of assume they can. The Romans, had there been cars back in the, the time of Jesus, could have done that. They had absolute authority to make somebody do what they wanted them to do. And so here they grab this man and commandeer not his vehicle, but his muscles. And they make him carry this patibulum for Jesus. He bears the load that Jesus was formerly bearing and carries it up the cross, up to the cross. Now, many of you were raised in Christian homes. So thinking back on your childhood, there might not be a time when you can actually recall not believing that there was a God. You might not be able to think back and remember a time when Jesus Christ and His salvation wasn't preached to you in some form. But others of you did not grow up with that great blessing of a Christian home. Some of you were interrupted by the gospel. Like this man, Simon of Cyrene, you were living your life unaware of the salvation that Jesus Christ brought. When suddenly Jesus Christ interrupted your existence, the message of the gospel was preached to you somehow, and you had to stop and decide for yourself what you thought of this historical man. Is he a man who is guilty and deserves to die on a cross, just a historical criminal? Or is he put to death wrongly? Is he an innocent man that honored God, that had given his whole life to serve the Lord? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic who thinks himself to be some supernatural deity that he is not? Or is he the Lord that we should bow to and give reverence and honor to? Within this brief mention here in Luke's Gospel, we have no indication what Simon thought of Jesus. But there is no doubt that suddenly Christ's mission has collided with Simon's free agency. And Simon has to walk now this journey up Calvary with this man who so many in the crowd were intent to execute. Let's turn our attention for a moment away from Simon of Cyrene. And let's meet another group of people who play a small role in the history of Jesus marching toward the cross. We also see in the Gospel of Luke here a group of women. And these are women in mourning. Following after Jesus is this, this crowd, and among the crowd are ladies who are crying out, probably in song, probably with loud wailing, lamentation over this man who is about to be put to death. It's worth noting that not one time in all of the Gospels do we ever see a woman say anything negative about Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Not one time. The scribes were happy to heap accusations against Jesus. The Pharisees tried to make him stumble at every chance they got. The high priests called for his death and accused him of being a rebel. Plenty of men tried to face and oppose Jesus, but not once in the Gospels do we see a woman doing that. Rather, Luke has gone out of his way to show us that there were quite a few women who, seeing Jesus, recognized him as Messiah and desired to serve him the best they could. Many offered Jesus food and lodging. Many ministered to his needs. Some anointed him. Many followed after him. Now, I'm not trying to say that women are just born saved and all us men need Jesus. But what I am saying, we, us men do need Jesus, but so do the ladies, okay? But it is interesting to note the kind of affection that women tend to have towards this man, this rabbi who came preaching judgment on the one hand, but mercy on the other. And so here we see a group of women following along after him. And as they make their way up to the place of the skull, they're wailing out in a traditional pattern of mourning. Now culturally this was very common in Israel. The Hebrew people as a rule held human life in much value and a much high regard. And the end of life was particularly sacred and holy to them. That's why in, in the Old Testament Levitical law, to touch a deceased body would render you unclean for a time. You had to go and ceremonially clean yourself because they wanted you to treat a dead body with dignity and respect. A, de a deceased body would be wrapped properly in white linens. If the family could afford it, they would layer inside of those linens fragrant spices and oils. As, as a blessing to that body. They would bury it with dignity, typically on the same day that the, the, the person died. They didn't wait for several days at a time. Most cases you see the body buried on the same day that the person expires. 
John 19.40 says, So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So we see this is not just a limited thing that happened to Jesus because he was seen by some as Messiah, but it was common practice in Israel. Also, was it common practice for Hebrew women to cry out when they saw a procession leading to a funeral? Even if it wasn't their beloved one, even if it wasn't their neighbor, if a Hebrew woman saw this procession towards burial, often they would join in on the lament. This is a way to give honor to the dead, but it was also a way to cry and to, to uh, repent of the sin that human beings have allowed to come into God's creation. You see, there would be no death had Adam and Eve not committed the first sin in the garden. It is our responsibility that this world is a dying place. And so when we see someone die, we should take that very seriously. And we should treat that moment with reverence. Some people do believe that these women who are mourning after Jesus didn't really know him well, or were not particularly mourning for him, but were just giving a general lament as the Hebrew people were wont to do. But in the morning that we see in verse 27 through 31, I think there is genuine sadness in the hearts of these women. I think it is sadness not for the reasons it should have been necessarily. Many among these women hoped that Jesus would be the Messiah. They thought that perhaps there was a chance he was going to rise up, that he was going to assemble an army of Israelites, that these Hebrew fighters were going to liberate Israel from Rome. Many, many people waited hoping that Jesus would do that, perhaps even during this Passover week. So for these women to see Jesus bound, whipped, headed down to his crucifixion, many of them saw that as a sign that he must not be the true Messiah if the Romans were able to kill him. The true Messiah, in their minds, would never allow themselves to be subjected to such shame to be defeated like this on a cross. Jesus, though he is bloodied and beaten, though he has lost so much blood, he has not lost the sharpness of his mind. We read in one of the Gospels that, that they tried to give him a, a, dr a drink, a mixture of bitter wine that had some frankincense in it. And I've read that historically some would give that to their family members who were going to be executed to try to numb their senses so they wouldn't feel the extent of the agony of the cross. Jesus denied that. He is clear of mind. And he speaks out to these women who are lamenting and crying out after him. He corrects them by indicating that their sadness is misplaced. It should not be directed towards his suffering. It should be directed towards their own suffering. His suffering will soon be complete. But the suffering that these women, and by extension the nation of Israel, and by extension their children will have to endure, is sure to last much longer. Let me explain. Jesus is assuming the role of the Old Testament prophet here for a moment. His words to the morning women indicate that creation is going to experience great hardship because of what is about to be done to Jesus. Because the people of the world put Jesus to death, the world will suffer. Now instead of the woe to you formula that Jesus has used in the past against the Pharisees and against others, Jesus instead chooses here to express a reversal of natural reaction. He tells these children that they will regret having children, or he tells these women that they will regret having children when the repercussions of killing Jesus begin to filter out into the world. To bear a child as a Hebrew woman was one of the greatest gifts God could give to you. It was an incredible joy. It was considered like a crown of blessing to receive a child from the Lord God. So for Jesus to say that those of you who are nursing will, will wish that you had not born children, those of you who are bearing children will, will wish that you had an empty womb, is a great radical reversal of value. The despair and the suffering of the people of the land will be so severe that in that time, that people will invite death upon themselves. They'll wish that they were dead rather than being living. They'll wish that the mountains would crumble down upon them, that the hills would cover them up with dirt. So they would rather be in the grave than enduring the life that they have to endure. And within 50 years of Jesus dying, know that this happened in the land of Jerusalem. David's holy city would be burned to the ground. And the temple that was supposed to be an honor to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, would be utterly destroyed. Not a stone would be left upon another stone. And the grief and the hardship this caused the people of Israel is immeasurable. Remember the bold words 
of the chief priests from Matthew 27 that we read a little while ago. They insisted that the blood of Jesus be on their own hands and on the hands of their children. And it appears historically they got what they wanted. Because of their willingness to execute Jesus Christ, there was great suffering among the nation of Israel, particularly in the region of Jerusalem. And Jesus warns them to prepare themselves for this great suffering. Verse 31 says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if God allows Jesus Christ, a righteous man, a live man, a vital man, to be burned up like this, to be destroyed on the cross, then what terrible fate awaits those who are heart of heart and spiritually dead? If Jesus must suffer the, the weight of the cross, then these individuals who are loveless and care not for the things of God will experience an even more complete destruction and judgment. A few minutes ago, we, say, or we saw Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus' cross. But Jesus explained to his disciples sometime earlier, didn't he, that those who would follow him must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him daily. Not only would suffering come to those who had crucified Jesus, but those who take upon their own lives faith in Jesus Christ would also have to prepare themselves for sufferings to come. In the Sermon on the Mount, he had told them, Blessed are those who are persecuted in my name's sake. For my name's sake. Those who follow after Christ cannot expect to have a perfect and trouble-free life. Hardships and trials will come upon them as well. And in our minor suffering, we in some ways can identify with the sufferings of Jesus. Now this proclamation of woe no doubt aims to see the daughters of Jerusalem considering their own sin. Jesus wants these women to think about the weight of what is being done and to repent of it. Jesus is not looking for sympathy from these women. Don't feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for yourselves. He is looking for conversion. He is looking for them to feel sorry for their own sins, which they are committing against the very Son of God by being a part of this terrible injustice. Of course, for that conversion to be possible, the Son of God must give His life. Immediately following this dark prophecy, Luke describes in just a couple of simple sentences that Jesus finally reaches the top of the hill and there He is crucified. I want you to notice the stunning brevity of verse 33 where Luke describes in so few terms that Jesus is put to death. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on the right, and the other on the left. Rather than describe this crucifixion in, in grave detail, Luke introduces two more characters, doesn't he? We have all of these secondary stories that Luke invites into the story of the cross. They are a small part of the bigger story of Jesus giving his life, but we don't want to overlook them. The criminals who are preparing to reap what they have sowed are also nailed to their crossbeams and hoisted into the air. And next week, Pastor Paul is going to preach for us and discuss in more detail the, the role that they play in the crucifixion of Jesus. They crucified him. Why so plain a description? Maybe a description wasn't necessary because the residents of Rome were so familiar with the grisly reality of the practice that to go into details would be to belabor the point. It would be to kick a dead horse, if, if I may. They saw crucifixions fairly regularly. The Roman government, any time an insurrection would happen, would crucify the offending parties and line their crosses along the most busy Roman highways so that more people would be exposed to the shame that would happen to those who opposed the Caesar. So they've seen the ugliness and the pain of the cross. But you and I have not. Crucifixion is not something that you're ever going to see driving down the highway to get to Brentwood. And so I think it is worth our time to take a moment to describe the ugliness of this process. We know that Jesus has already been scourged. And so his back is a map of bleeding and suffering. 
Reeling from this pain, he is then forced to carry that terrible piece of wood on his back upon which he would later be nailed. He had to march on an upward slope because of the, the terrain and the geography of Jerusalem. There wasn't a straight road that everybody was traveling. And so instead they took him up to a hill because they wanted everyone for miles around to be able to see and witness his shame. Jesus was likely stripped naked or at the very most he had a small loincloth that he was wearing. You may have noticed at the end of the passage the soldiers cast lot for his clothes. They did that because they took his clothes off of him before they nailed him and lifted him up in the sky. To nail Jesus to the cross, they used 10-inch iron stakes, which were then driven through his hands, probably just below the wrist. A nail through the hand here would probably not support the weight. It would pull through the soft tissue. And the Greek word for hand indicates the tip of the finger to the elbow. And so the nail was probably driven right through the wrist in between the two bones there in the, the outside part of the arm. Through his feet was driven a single iron stake. Archaeologists have discovered that sometimes crucified people were crucified with their legs on either side of the stake and two nails were driven through, but the scripture tells us that there was one nail in the feet of our Savior. He is lifted up so that everyone can mock him, so that everyone can see that Rome has triumphed over him. He is derided even by the criminal that is hanging on the cross next to him. And over the course of the next few hours, sometimes crucifixion took days for those victims. But for Jesus, over the next few hours, he would experience incredible agony and overwhelming exhaustion. If a crucified criminal did not die from the loss of blood, if they did not die from the shock of the pain they experienced, they would eventually die from asphyxiation. Because they were so tired, they could not bear to pull themselves up to breathe one more breath of air in and eventually they would suffocate. It was a grisly and gruesome way to die. This, brothers and sisters, is what the holiest man to ever set foot on planet Earth is suffering on our behalf. As he experiences this in the very midst of all of this hardship, Jesus has this to say. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the very center of his agony, Jesus is concerned not for himself, but for the lost people he is dying for. He is concerned for the very individuals that would put him to death, those who spit upon him, those who mock him and deride him. He prays for his enemies in this very moment. He doesn't plead, Father, make them see what they're doing so that they'll change their minds and bring me down from this cross. Open their eyes so that I might be spared this agony. No. The terrible thing that they are doing, though they don't understand it, is absolutely necessary. Jesus must die, and it cannot be stopped. Nothing in heaven and earth could stop Jesus from giving his life. We don't see at this scene even one of the people who are present crying out in humility to the Lord. We don't see a single person in shame turning their face away and asking God to spare them. Jesus is the one pleading for them. He is the advocate that comes before the throne of God and says, Lord, have mercy on these sinners. I will pay their penalty for them. Now to emphasize their great ignorance, to highlight how oblivious they are to their actions. Luke includes this final detail in verse 34. It says, And they cast lots to divide his garments. As he prays over them, as he intercedes and advocates for their, for their lives, the soldiers at the foot of the cross are fighting over who gets his bloody garments so they can take them home and use them as shop rags. That's what they're focused on. This is such a radical contrast of value, isn't it? But also a sadly accurate depiction of how worldly things typically consume the sinful heart of man. Here these men have salvation in front of them, and all they can do is gamble over his clothes. 
I have no doubt that if the Son of God were to come in this modern time, in this modern age, if He were to come now and live perfectly and gave His life now instead of then during the time of Rome, that many of the people who are gathered around the crucifixion of Jesus on that hillside would be, would be seen from time to time glancing down at their phones to check the scores of the game. <laughs> or looking to see if maybe somebody had you know, hit them up on Facebook. Maybe a little game to play because crucifixion just takes so long. That's the kind of ignorance we see on the hill of Calvary while Jesus pours out his blood to wash our sins away. That's how lost we are, brothers and sisters. That's how badly we need saving. But there were a few who realized that what Jesus was doing was incredibly significant. Before we conclude today, I want to take a moment to return to Simon of Cyrene. What do we know about this man? We've learned that he has a name. His name is Simon. We've learned that he has an origin. He's from Cyrene. We've learned that he has a story. He is on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to experience the Passover when he is commandeered. But this man also has a legacy. Simon was a father. Luke doesn't tell us this detail, but the Gospel of Mark does. Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. He was the father of two men, and we know their names. Not because Luke told us, because Luke knew that his readers probably didn't know Rufus and Alexander, but Mark's readers were familiar with them. If you were to go to Romans chapter 16, at the very end of that beautiful letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, arguing for their clarity on the, on the weight of sin and on the power of the cross to save, at the very end he gives greetings to different brothers and sisters who are with him who are sending a word on to Rome. He's also sending a message to those who are in Rome that the people who are back where he is are loved and prayed for. And so in verse 12 of Romans 16, it says, Greet thee as workers in the Lord, Trephena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Perses, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. It is very likely that the man who carried the crossbeam for Jesus was so struck by the dignity with which Christ carried himself. He was so impressed by the courage in the face of shame that Jesus showed to the crowds, so affected by the way that he prayed for God to forgive his own enemies, that Simon of Cyrene walked away from Calvary that day a saved man. And Simon's wife, as he returned back to Cyrene with this truth weighing heavy on him, came to believe in Christ as well. Those two individuals raised two children, at least two sons, Rufus and Alexander, one of, least, one of which, at least, became a major part of the early church movement. And by the time Luke is writing this, they are counted as fellow workers of the gospel. Simon's wife so faithfully ministered to the apostle Paul years later that he would consider her like a second mother. She was so kind to him. And so Luke, by mentioning Simon, he adds historical credence to the witness of these accounts, but beyond that, we see that not all who witnessed Christ on the cross missed the point. There are those whose lives have been interrupted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, whose lives have been suddenly put on pause, because they've learned that God loved mankind to such a degree that he desired to save it. And he spared nothing to accomplish that. He gave his own son who took on flesh, who lived perfectly and free of sin, who willingly died like a sinner to pay the legal debt that sinners owed to God so that all who would trust in his work would not be accounted indebted to God and to the wrath that he has against sin but instead would be free men and free women. Jesus paid the penalty for all who would trust in him. Some of your lives have been interrupted by this truth, and some of you have believed. This is what happened to Simon of Cyrene. 
a man who believed in God and Yahweh, and he came from a significant distance to worship alongside other Jewish believers. And little did he know that he would be the one compelled to carry the very cross of the man who would conquer his sin and make him alive. Not everyone missed the importance of the cross that day. The question is, will we miss it? Will we read these words and simply see it as interesting history? Or will we realize that this critical moment in time was God's eternal solution for the sins that we have committed against Him? If you want to have a right relationship with God the Father, with the one who has made you, it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come by good deeds. It doesn't come by you giving any amount of money to God's church. It comes simply by trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, knowing that he did not deserve to die, but he willingly gave himself on the cross. Will you put your faith and trust in him today? And having put your faith and trust in him, will you let the cross be the significant revolutionary moment for you from this day forward that God intends it to be? Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we thank you for the offensive violence of the cross, which is difficult for us to hear, which is difficult for me to preach, to think about someone who loved me better than anyone has ever loved me being torn to shreds like this. It turns my stomach. But at the same time, it lifts my spirit. Because I know that all of that was done so that wretched people like us would be made right with God. No amount of penance on our part could do what Jesus did as he bled there for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for making us new by your death. And thank you that in just a couple of weeks, I will get to preach the, the triumphant rising of your son, Jesus Christ. Because the death, had, the death that he has suffered had no power to hold him down. Jesus did not expire or cease to exist when he died on that cross. Instead, he put our sin to death and rose victorious so that we might too walk in newness of life. And so with that newness of life, Lord God, let us praise you with our everything. Let us desire to draw other people who do not yet know the power of the cross to the cross so that might, they might see it, they might experience it, Lord God, and they might bow their hearts to it. God, help us to be surrendered to you as you surrendered yourself to the Father and to his holy will. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.